0: This is the Extreme Stewardship Podcast, where we explore anything and everything that gets us better at making things good, and good at making things better. Right now, I'm particularly interested in getting better at this thing we call leadership. And I'm pretty convinced that the fundamental prerequisite for getting better at leadership is humility. So in the last couple of episodes, I've worked through some basic confessions of a humble leader— And in this fifth and final episode on leadership, I'll add one more confession to that list. And here it is. Leadership is a multi-generational undertaking. I've already said a few times that leadership has to do with helping other people get better at making things good and good at making things better. In this episode, I want to press that point to its extreme and suggest that we aren't really leaders in the biblical sense until the people whom we lead become leaders themselves leaders don't create followers. Leaders create leaders. And since we're not leaders until we create leaders, that means I'm not a leader until the people whom I've influenced have influenced others. So three generations is the minimum for biblical leadership. I can't claim to have led until we're three generations into this thing. Now, maybe you can already see where this is going. It's going to absolutely turn on its head our tendency to point to individuals and label them great leaders when we're not even into the second generation, never mind the third. I heard someone say once, I think it was a guest on Preston Sprinkle's Theology in the Raw podcast, they commented that the Protestant church has a bad habit of canonizing its saints before they're even dead. And that's true, and you can probably think of examples that turned out to be pretty embarrassing for one segment or another of the Protestant church. But I don't think it's a particularly Protestant problem, or an American problem, or a modern problem. I think it's a human problem. We want to render a verdict before all the evidence is in. And in the case of leaders, that means assuming that having followers is the mark of a leader, or maybe making a lot of money is the mark of a leader, or demonstrating a dominant personality is the mark of a leader. And all of these are wrong. The mark of a leader is the perpetuation of creation-improving work multiple generations down the road, which means I am not demonstrably a leader, a biblical leader, until well after I'm gone. Okay, here's the biblical basis for all this. There's a negative proof and a positive proof, you might say. The negative proof goes something like this. The Bible is full of supposed leaders who left wreckage in their wake, leaders about whom the loudest biblical testimony is their failure to raise up the next generation. And the more frequently the Bible highlights a particular sort of failure, the more you can bank on the importance of success in that arena. Think of some of the common negative examples in the Bible, like fatherhood. That's a big deal, right? Now think about some of the well-known fathers in the Bible. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Samuel, David, all terrible fathers. Name one even halfway decent human father in the entire Bible. Here's my point. One of God's ways of saying, this is important, this is a big deal, is to show us over and over how and why not to do something. And multi-generational faithfulness through biblical leadership is a classic example of this. That's the negative proof. There's also a positive proof, a a positive claim that biblical leadership is a multi-generational undertaking. The Apostle Paul was once accused of being a fraud, a fake, someone who lied when he identified himself as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a long backstory here, but the short version is this. Paul had been telling the Corinthian church what to do for a few years, and over the course of those years, their relationship had deteriorated as he wanted them to do what they didn't want to do. Things came to a head when some folks came from out of town to the Corinthian church and started highlighting the various ways that Paul did not measure up to accepted standards of leadership. Letters of recommendation, financial accountability, rhetorical prowess, Paul apparently possessed none of these things. So eventually the Corinthian church reached out to Paul and told him to put up or shut up. He was to come to Corinth and stand trial for his apostleship and they, the Corinthian church, would be judge, jury, and executioner. And we find a portion of Paul's response to this summons in the letter we call 2 Corinthians. So Paul had some pretty strong opinions about his apostleship. When he thought the Galatian churches were going sideways on some issues, he played that card by saying he received his apostleship directly from Jesus, and anyone who disagrees with him can go to hell. No, really, that, that's what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But that guns-blazing, head-on approach isn't what we find in 2 Corinthians 1. In 2 Corinthians 1, we find a rather muddled string of claims about suffering. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3-7. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. It uh, It is not at all obvious, at least to me, what that has to do with the legitimacy of Paul's leadership in the church. But this isn't the sledgehammer of Galatians. Paul isn't going to say, "I'm an apostle," because Jesus says, "So deal with it. I don't know you an explanation beyond that." Rather, he's going to say something about suffering and comfort. First, Christ suffers, and through that suffering, Paul is comforted. Then Paul suffers, and through that, the Corinthian Church is comforted, and the assumed next step should be that the Corinthian church will suffer, and someone else will be comforted as a result. But that last part isn't stated because that last part is the question. Has the Corinthian church suffered such that someone else would be comforted? That's the critical question, because that is the real issue concerning Paul's apostleship. How do we know if Paul's the real thing? By seeing if the Corinthian church is having the kind of influence on others that Christ had on Paul and Paul had on the Corinthian church. In other words, the legitimacy of Paul's leadership is in the effect that his leadership has had on the Corinthian church and the effect that the Corinthian church has had on others beyond Paul's reach. When my students have become teachers, I have truly taught. When my followers have become leaders, I have truly led. For my students to be teachers, they have to have students of their own. For my followers to be leaders, they have to have followers of their own. Followers who in time become leaders themselves. And so the cycle continues. Now to the practical implications. Number one, we need to stop identifying people as successful leaders because of the size of their platform quantity of followers, volume of influence, these are irrelevant in the biblical definition of leaders. I doubt I need to say something here about politicians, actors, social media influences, pastors, academics. Implication number two. Longevity is a potentially valid but not sufficient criterion. I mean a long tenure of leadership, stability, faithfulness, all that. This might be really important, but it's not enough. We don't establish ourselves as leaders by never leaving. We establish ourselves as leaders by what happens when we leave You're not a leader just because you can get a business off the ground and keep it alive by sheer force of will and workaholism. I'm not knocking entrepreneurial endeavors, I've been there myself. But the CEO of a startup isn't a leader until the startup is no longer a startup and the CEO is no longer the CEO. I knew a college basketball coach whose career consisted of a series of three to five year coaching gigs. He would come into a struggling program, make a bunch of hard decisions and do the work of getting that program on track, and then he would leave and go do the same thing somewhere else. Each time he left, he left the newly successful program in the hands of a younger coach who would maintain and increase the success of that program for decades. So that first coach was a great leader, not simply because the team got better while he was there, But because he put it on track to keep getting better after he left. And in his case, it didn't require a lifelong commitment to a single team. Implication number three I've said this one before, it's worth repeating. Leaders create leaders, not followers. People do what I tell them. That's not leadership. People like me. That's not leadership. People are influenced by me not only to improve creation, but also to influence others to do the same. That is leadership. I cannot overstate how important this is in the context of seeing leadership as stewardship rather than ownership. Owners build a following, stewards empower leaders. Last implication succession plans are integral to leadership. Succession plans are not something leaders may or may not do once they are ready to stop leading. If I want to lead biblically, I will do everything I can to ensure the continuation of the work after I'm gone. I won't say, not my problem. I'll plan ahead. I'll give up control so someone else can get reps in. I'll provide opportunities for my team to function without me. I'll be that parent who refuses to do everything for my children because I know that even if me doing the work would be more efficient, more tactically preferable, the strategic outcome of my kids becoming adults and parents themselves requires that we take the slower, more painful path of making sure they can do the work themselves. And until they can do that, I have not fulfilled my calling as a parent. I have not fulfilled my calling as a leader. Because leadership means not only doing the work, not only getting the next generation ready to do the work, but going one step further and getting the next generation ready to get the next generation after that ready to do the work. Thanks for listening to the Extreme Stewardship Podcast. My name is Michael Kibbe, and I teach Bible and theology at Great Northern University in Spokane, Washington. My behind-the-scenes partner in this project is my brother, Ben Kibbe. Our editor-in-chief is Anna Lee Stockton. Art comes from Leah Leenhoutz, And, of course, music is provided by Dave Murray of Deridun Guitars. If this series has been helpful or challenging to you, or if you've got a story about extreme stewardship that you'd be willing to share, shoot us an email, extremestewards at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You are, of course, welcome to like and subscribe and tell your friends and all that. What we really care about is that you have gotten better at making things good and good at making things better.